when churches like ours moved to an online worship format this past March, much was lost. And I can't wait until that day you and I will be able to safely gather again in person here in this sanctuary. But there have been some blessings that have come with the move to online worship. And one of those, for me at least, has been the opportunity it's afforded for members of my family from San Diego, up in the Bay Area, and over in Colorado to participate in Knox's worship service each Sunday. And so I asked them at a recent Zoom family dinner if they might be willing to read scripture for an upcoming worship service. They graciously agreed. And so here now is first my parents down in San Diego, then my brother and two of his kids from up in Tiburon, then my sister and brother-in-law from Boulder, Colorado, and finally my wife and daughter from Altadena reading the third chapter of the book of Ruth. As we prepare for this reading of scripture, let's pray. Loving God, we ask that you might illumine our minds and hearts, that the words we hear read and proclaimed might be your word for us by the power of your Holy Spirit. It is in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. A reading from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Listen for God's word to us. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. And do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies down. Go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, all that you tell me, I will do. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did according to all of her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid, Boaz said. I will do for you all that you ask, for all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night, and in the morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, Good, let him do so. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another. For he said, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Then he said, bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. 
and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law, who said, How did things go with you, my daughter? Then Ruth told her all that the man had done for her, saying, He gave me these six measures of barley, for he said, Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. There are a number of great themes that we've been able to look at together in this little four-chapter book of Ruth. We began in the sermon series looking at the theme of loss, for Ruth begins with great loss. Naomi first loses her home in Bethlehem of Judah as she has to depart, for there is a famine in that land. She heads to the foreign land of Moab. There in Moab, Naomi suffers yet further loss. She loses her husband and her two sons to death. Grief-stricken and destitute, she prepares to return to Bethlehem in Judah. But then we looked at another theme in Ruth, the theme of kindness. Ruth, Naomi's Moabite daughter-in-law, does not return to her previous family in Moab, but rather tells Naomi, where you go, I will go. She promises to accompany Naomi to Bethlehem and Judah and even unto death. That kindness of Ruth points to the kindness at God's heart. We then looked at the theme of home, for Ruth and Naomi head to Bethlehem and Judah looking for a home. Ruth heads out into one of the fields in Bethlehem of Judah to glean, to try to gather enough food for her and Naomi, and there she encounters Boaz. Boaz is the owner of the field and, as it turns out, related to Naomi. We will be looking at the theme of redemption in a future sermon, as redemption is a prominent theme in the latter part of Ruth. But today, as we look at the third chapter, I want to highlight a theme that we see here and in other sections of Ruth. And it's a theme you might call anti-racism. Anti-racism. Now, I can hear you protest already. Anti-racism? Wait, how can you use a term like anti-racism when speaking about the book of Ruth? Ruth was written four to six centuries before the Common Era, and race as a concept emerged nearly 2,000 years later. Ibram Kendi identifies 1481 as the first time race as a term was used in written form. And it was only in that century, the 15th century of the Common Era, 2,000 years after Ruth was written, that this concept of race grew to prominence. Slavery in various forms had been in existence long before the 15th century of our era, of course. We read about slavery in the Bible. But we read in scripture that people of ancient Israel, for example, could be enslaved to other people of ancient Israel, for example, if they fell into debt and couldn't pay it back. And prior to the 15th century, historians tell us Europeans, Africans, and Arabs might at times be held by other Europeans, Africans, and Arabs in various conditions of enslavement. But in the 15th century, we start to see written records of Europeans differentiating people under the broad color categories of white and black. 
Gomez de Zurara, the Portuguese writer and commander, describes a human auction, a slave auction he witnessed in Portugal in 1444. And there, Zurara lumps together in his writing wildly disparate people groups. People of different languages, cultures, skin colors, and ethnicities are all placed into one of two overarching categories, white or black. Zurara writes positively about those he deems white and negatively about those he deems black. That distinction and hierarchy, white over black, would then be used by Portuguese merchants and slave traders, among others, to justify the transatlantic slave trade. Race was created as a concept, Ibram Kendi argues, to allow for the economic exploitation by some people, like Portuguese merchants and slave traders, among other people, of others, like those from Central and West Africa. So if race was invented back in the 15th century, then Pastor Matt, how can you speak of racism or anti-racism with regard to a book like Ruth? It was written some 2,000 years earlier. And you make a good point. But here is my response. An idea that has come to the fore in recent years is the notion of anti-racism. Anti-racism. Knox even has an anti-racism mission team. Racism, as some define it, is those policies, practices, or ideas that create or maintain a social hierarchy between people of different races. Anti-racism is the pursuit of policies, practices, and ideas that undo the social hierarchies and inequalities between races. And if you're willing to broaden the definition of anti-racism just a little further and see it as the work of undoing any unjust social hierarchy, if you see that as a natural extension of anti-racism work, then suddenly you have a theme that not only spans human history, but that's displayed most prominently in Scripture. Disrupting social hierarchies for the liberation of people. We see that again and again in the Bible. In today's racy third chapter of Ruth, for example, we read of two people on vastly different sides of a social hierarchy coming together. And as they do, we see the social hierarchies that separate them undone right before our eyes. Ruth, we've learned in chapters 1 and 2, is a poor, widowed, immigrant Moabite. In other words, she's at the very bottom of the social hierarchy in first century Judah. In that time and place, when it came to holding power, men were above women, married women, above widows, citizens above immigrants, and native Judites above Moabites, at least in Judah. We read in Deuteronomy that Moabites were banned from the assembly of the Lord. We read in Ezra and Nehemiah voices in ancient Israel saying, separate yourself from the Moabites and certainly don't intermarry with them. Even though Ruth had embraced the God of Israel, we read back in chapter 1, even though she had embraced a God who Israel believed was the God of all people, still Ruth was a Moabite. And that meant she lacked the rights and protections of native Judites. And if you wanted to pick someone on the very bottom of the social ladder in Bethlehem, it would surely be Ruth, a poor, immigrant, widowed Moabite. And then if you wanted to point to someone on the opposite side, the very top of the social hierarchy in Judah, it might well be 
Boaz. Boaz was a wealthy, land-holding male and citizen of Judah. The social order of their day said, you two, Ruth and Boaz, you come from different worlds. You two should not even be conversing, let alone falling in love. There's a wall separating you two. Don't you see it? Apparently, they don't. Love has a way of disrupting things. Naomi instructs her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, to proceed cautiously as she approaches Boaz. But Ruth throws caution to the wind. She essentially goes up to Boaz and says, hey, the two of us, you and me, we should be together. It's as if Ruth does not see these distinctions others did, or maybe she does see them, but believes they're meant to be overturned. Now, Boaz could have said, Who do you think you are, approaching me, propositioning me? But Boaz does not respond that way. He seems to see not her poverty, but her courage. Not her foreign status, but her kindness. Her kindness toward her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her kindness towards him, Boaz. He notes she is younger, he is older. He's not sure he is good enough for her. And yet, the two connect. Ruth's advance is received and words of affection are returned. And for one moment in time, a social hierarchy is broken apart. And this coupling, this coming together of Ruth and Boaz from that marriage ultimately would come King David. And from him by Joseph's line, the one we call Jesus the Christ. In that moment, Ruth and Boaz coming together, we see something else too. We see a God who is so often at work in Scripture disrupting social hierarchies that justice might roll down like waters. When an ancient pharaoh in Egypt decided there should be a social hierarchy between Egyptians and ancient Hebrews, with ancient Hebrews enslaved to the people of ancient Egypt, God disrupted that dehumanizing arrangement. God intervened through the work of Moses. When God saw that widows, immigrants, and orphans were kept on the bottom of the social ladder in ancient Israel, God intervened through the prophets to disrupt that scheme and lift up those who had been held down before. And then in the fullness of time, when God came near to us in Jesus Christ, God saw that certain religious leaders like the Pharisees had constructed social hierarchies that placed themselves at the top and others like sinners and tax collectors at the bottom. Jesus the Christ ate with tax collectors and sinners and welcomed them to the fellowship of God's kingdom with him. When a woman, who the Pharisees called a sinner, bathed Jesus' feet with her tears and anointed his feet with oil, Jesus elevated that woman. He said before the Pharisees that she and not they was the exemplar of faith. God is so often at work in Scripture disrupting unjust social hierarchies, engaging in what you might call the work of anti-racism. We even see it in the New Testament epistles like Galatians. There Paul lists the social hierarchies of his day, Jews above non-Jews, male above female, free above slave. And Paul writes how Christ breaks down all those categories, making people one by the death and resurrection of Christ. So yes, 
You won't find the word race in the Bible. You won't find it in history before roughly the 15th century. But if you see anti-racism as the work of breaking down social systems that keep some impoverished or kept out, then there is anti-racism in Ruth, in Exodus, in the prophets, in Jesus and his ministry. There is anti-racism in what our Savior's life, death, and resurrection mean for us. God is engaged, Scripture proclaims, in the liberating work of anti-racism. As followers of that God, as people God has called and claimed as God's very own in Christ, we now engage in that God-filled work too. This past year, many have become acutely aware of social stratifications and inequalities connected with race. Studies indicate black Americans are nearly two and a half times as likely to be killed by police as white Americans. That disparity is now making headlines thanks in large part to the powerful work of the Black Lives Matter movement. And in response, people of faith have been gathering for prayer and protest back in 2015 to mourn the death of Kendrick McDade, more recently following the death of George Floyd, and then in even these past couple weeks, gathering at La Pintoresca Park in Pasadena where Anthony McLean was shot and killed by a police officer in August. In the pandemic, we're noting the vast disparity in infection rates between people of different races. Data collected over the past six months indicates black people, along with Hispanic and Native Americans, are roughly five times more likely to be hospitalized due to COVID-19 than whites. And so people of faith today engage in the work of study and self-examination, of repentance as individuals, congregations, a broader denomination, a global church for the ways we've been complicit in injustice and we embrace anew a God who brings personal and social transformation. Anti-racism, it's part of the Christian life. For it's the very work of loving our neighbor. It's the work of responding in faith to a God who brings blessed disruption to unjust hierarchies in Ruth's day and in ours. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.